Welcome to the Grimshaw Podcast, the City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Uh, my guest today is Rob Stokes, who's Minister for Planning and Public Spaces in New South Wales. Uh, New South Wales, remember, has a population of 9 million, and its capital city, Sydney, uh, has 5 million. Um, so this, these are big responsibilities. Uh, Rob is that unusual person, an intellectual in politics, who's also recognised on both sides of the aisle uh, politically as a decent bloke. Uh, he also is really unusual for a planning minister, and actually having had a planning law background, uh, he's got a PhD in planning law, uh, and actually has studied urbanism at Oxford University. Um, he's also, as I think of him, the Member of Parliament for Home and Away, uh, which soap is actually filmed in his constituency. And I'm delighted to say he's found time in his busy schedule to talk to us about cities uh, after COVID and all the uh, aspects that he's been dealing with during the last fraught 18 months. And I should add that uh, Rob is uh, very unusual in modern day politics and actually being a, ma- a man of faith. And all these uh, values and principles and matters come out in this rather warm and I think excellent conversation. I hope you enjoy. So. Uh, you're very welcome, Minister Rob Stokes. How are you? Very well, thanks, Tim. Uh, so I'm, I'm currently in isolation. It was a, a break, a, a, an outbreak of COVID-19 uh, that caught up the New South Wales Parliament. So um, I'm on my last day um, of, of isolation, which has been a bit trying. But having said that, we're so fortunate to be here and it just makes us reflect on, on how comparatively um, lucky we have been in, in, in Australia. I think it's worth, um, we'll talk about it later on, I think, but uh, A, you're on the northern beaches, which of course uh, is God-given as, a, as an environment which to, you know, struggle, struggle in. Uh, but also, um, Australia and New South Wales have, been, have done really very well in terms of health outcomes. And I'm going to ask you later on whether that should figure in our kind of optimism about the future to some, to some degree. So I'm, I, I think it should, um, but we'll, we'll come back to that. So um, you've, uh, you've got a, uh, what, what is a cluster? For those people who are not familiar with ministerial jargon, what do you mean? And what are you, what are you all up to there together? I'm, I'm sure there'd be some unkind um, uh, suggestions what a cluster is, but it's, it's effectively a grouping within government of, uh, of, of departments that have a common focus that are directed toward a particular public policy outcome. So in my case, I, I'm the lead minister, and I don't know what the collective noun for a group of ministers is, but I, I suspect it would be unprintable. But, um, but um, and, and my job is to effectively organise all of the funding bids for those various ministries uh, into, a, um, in, into the treasury process uh, to make sure that there's some coherence about the way in which uh, we, we, we plan for the future of the state. In, in the past, we've sort of had um, battles between the environment bureaucrats on the one end and the, the industry or mining bureaucrats on the other end. The idea is to put them all in the same uh, playpen so they have to get on nicely together uh, and, and work out a consistent um, sort of government perspective um, and then go out and consult the community rather than uh, having these, 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 um, these sort of disagreements that, that in the past has sent, sent a sort of suggestion that, that government is a bit... Um, uh, opposed to itself. Um, the idea of the grouping, particularly in planning industry and environment, is effectively to recognise that there is a vast transition going on globally, an economic transition that has, um, you know, I think it's Frank uh, Gill would call it a socio-economic transition, which is 
from one period of stability that will ultimately lead to another period of stability. But while we're in this, this transition, there's a lot of economic and social dislocation and a lot of environmental externalities. And so it's about planning the most effective pathway uh, through, uh, through the Tempest. And, and that's effectively what the mission of uh, the Department of Planning, Industry and Environment is. So I think that there's great virtue in this. And I, and I think you're right in terms of the community is suffered from and complained about, I think, correctly, actually, a lack of integration of a number of these things. It's very important. I want to talk about also how this has led the New South Wales government, I think, to be quite progressive and leading around the word place um, and the word precinct. It's funny, I'm, I'm not so fond of the word precinct because I regard it as a kind of American Americanism that I'm not quite sure of the boundaries of a precinct, but then I'm not quite sure of the boundaries of a place. And they both seem quite virtuous to, to me. So I, th I think I, I want to come back to that. Firstly, I think, um, just a little bit about you coming into all this, because you're a lawyer, but you're a, you've done a lot of planning law, I think, and also you've studied uh, the, the Oxford course on, um, is that urban planning or urban design? What was that? But I mean, you come into it as an unusually, if I might say so, you know, uh, you know qualified and actually uh, well-read. I, I don't want to cause you problems with some of your colleagues, but, you know, well-read. Well uh, if I might say so. So, um, you know, has this been a passion of yours for a while, the stuff that you're doing now? It has, Tim, and actually, um, I, I think in many ways we, we're, we're pleased to pop in, in, in our, uh, the way in which we look at these sorts of um, urban problems. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a huge advocate of all the work you're able to do with Committee for Sydney. And um, you were, you know, at times a thorn inside of government, but that's exactly what government needs. And that was a really important role that you played and, and really helped, um, I, I think, appropriately shape the discussion about the growth and future of Sydney. Um, but for me, I, I remember, when I, just a personal anecdote, I remember uh, toward the end of my PhD studies, I, I'd really worked hard on what I thought was a profoundly useful contribution to the corpus of knowledge. And I had this opportunity to, uh, uh, to, to go to uh, University College London, which, you know, was a vaunted institution uh, to, 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 to tell the assembled throng, throngs all of, you know, the wise things I had to say. And I, I really knew I had something valuable to contribute. So I you know, got a grant and got a, you know, a, um, uh, uh, the opportunity to present at this conference and uh, went over there and, and uh, two people turned up. <laughs> and, and I thought, no, that, that's okay. I'll, I'll, um, there'll be an opportunity afterwards to, to talk to, you know, I saw some really eminent planners and thinkers and urbanists that I thought, oh, I'll go and talk to them. And, um, and as I was talking to them, it became painfully clear to me that they weren't in the least bit interested in talking to me and I realized at that point it's it's all very well to have something to say but you actually need a platform uh, to to communicate from and if you don't have that platform then no one's going to hear you the, the 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 alternative challenge of course is many in public life I think might suffer from the problem they've got a platform but they've got nothing to say so I wanted to put the two together and so my passage into public life was really about I, I, I felt I had something to contribute. I felt I had these ideas and these experiences and these opportunities. I wanted to to uh, to share them, and uh, and I need a platform to do that. The, the challenge, of course, is you get so embedded in the day to day that you you sometimes uh, forget to keep your eye on the horizon and have something useful to contribute and something useful to say. I think it's the um, I'm fascinated by this because um, in my dreams, as you know, I'm, I regard myself as a philosopher king. You know. <laughs> 
so but you you're you, know, you might you're, you're, what you've just described is an attempt i think to you know be somebody with like bring thought leadership together with actually having a responsibility to change something and i think that's a very noble and very unusual journey so you know uh, congratulations for getting to the platform in the first place but i think you've done some really interesting things with it i wanted to say and i i've not said this to you before but i think the whole emphasis that the new south Wales government has had on place which I think is really important. You know, people, you and I have talked before, they, they, don't, they don't just kick off against bad architecture. They kick off against the bad place consequences that arise from sort of, you know, unthought through development and lack of integration of land use and transport and all that kind of stuff, right? So I think, I do think that there's a, been a greater emphasis on that integration and on that whole idea of worrying about place in the New South Wales government. I mean, I'm, at, I'm not, over-egging that. I mean, I think you have, you have put a lot of emphasis on that across government. Is that right? Yeah, well, we're trying to lead it and, and in one sense rage against the institutions um, because institutionally it's much easier to talk about precincts and you're right to draw. I, I've sort of um, uh, really agonised about terminology. I actually think, and, and my staff will tell you, they'll roll their eyes, they get sick of me focusing on words, but I think words have real power. Um, Bob Carr wrote an interesting, the former uh, New South Wales Premier wrote an interesting piece on this recently, um, and I agree with him. Um, what we say um, has real consequence, and I think words and the etymology of words and where they come from is very instructive. And I think often in planning parlance, we use euphemisms um, and we get into these sort of Orwellian words because we don't want to speak truth, um, because the truth can, can, can raise unpleasant political consequences. But I think it's always important to try and be as honest as we can because then you, you, you set the context for a, for a healthy conversation. I think the problem with the word precinct is it is a bit atomistic. It it's, seeks to separate. A precinct is, you look at the definitions, it's effectively almost a place that's set apart, um, almost fenced. That um, So it's a very modernist approach that, oh, you, you put the factories over there or uh, you, you, you might talk about a sporting precinct that is quite consciously separated from the areas around it. Whereas a place, I think, rather than looking inward, it tends to look outward. And so it's about the connection to place um, and the integration of place, not about the separation of a precinct. So. I do think it's important to, to differentiate, and I, I much prefer to advocate the idea of place thinking because I think it's altogether much more democratic and it's all, altogether much more organic as well. I love that. I think that's right. I think place is, in a, is a word we own as a, as a community and as a people, and precinct feels to me like a ge geomet geometric no notion or somebody else's notion that doesn't feel local to me. I like the word place a lot, and, and I know that it makes a huge difference to people out there. They value their place. Uh, and we learn from that, and I know you. I know you do. I was very interested in. In um, I'm interested in so much of this kind of conversation. Do you, do you, uh, of your kind of core activities that you, you you have to keep an oversight of? One thing that you have revolutionised, I think, is the emphasis on open space, and and um, you know you've made a, a really important um, series of kind of initiatives around understanding the value that people have uh, for open space space and all that kind of stuff can you say a bit more about the innovations and the initiatives because they won't necessarily be known outside new south wales and i think they're worthy of a platform 
Uh, th thanks, Tim. And I guess, um, you know, I'm very um, proud of the fact that I'm the first, as, as we understand, any, um, Minister for Public Spaces anywhere in the world. And um, and I was really keen when the Premier, Gladys Berejiklian, spoke to me before the election about her intention to set up this ministry. Said, Please, can I have it? Because it actually worked really well with planning. Because, you know, often, and I talked about the euphemisms we use in planning, you know, this urban renewal as a, as a euphemism for, for densification. But really, you can't talk about that effectively and usefully and have a, a broader political conversation with, with affected communities without talking about parkland renewable at the same time. You can't say, well, these are the costs without saying these are the benefits and the integration of the two. And, um, and thinking holistically about place. So I mean, often our, our focus on architecture is just about the built environment and more specifically just about a particular structure. But when you think about it from the public realm perspective and, and to put an economic lens on it, to look at the, you know, the public good, I suppose, if you're looking at those things that are non-rival and non-exclusive, the, 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 the perception of our surroundings from the public realm is, is really important. That's something that is democratic, belongs to us all. And so um, the form and um, even more so than the function of structures is really important. And that integration with open spaces, um, you, you know, um, there's an increasing, uh, even a, a level of, um, uh, of case law around things like light trespass and, and view corridors and these sorts of, you know, access to sunlight and these sorts of things. Um, but the, um, the, the, the fenestration of buildings, the articulation of structures, uh, the interspersion with trees, you know, the, 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 the biodiversity benefits of, of, of parkland, but also the mental and physical health benefits of parkland, it, it, um, the, the opportunity to integrate it with active transport uh, and to, to, um, to, to make a parks something that joins places together. Um, and articulate places. It's sort of, I mean, the, the metaphor I like to use is you look at the page of a, of a book, for example, um, and, and the only thing that gives the characters any meaning is the bits that aren't written on. The margins are just as important to deciphering the page as the words themselves. And, and marketers know this well. I mean, you, you know, so some of the, the big marketing companies will just throw one or two words on a blank page so they really stand out. So the margins are just as important. And so the parkland is just as important to, uh, to, to, to the built environment and give it meaning. I wouldn't want people to think that you're minister for the margins though, Rob, you know, the... Uh... <laughs> well, well, no, but, but yes, we should. I mean, you know, when you're thinking about cities as well, um, and I guess this is a bit of um, uh, what the sociologists call it. I think there's a theoretical name for it. But people like David Harvey and um, and and uh, is it Harvey uh, uh, Moloch uh, talk about this idea of um, cities being places where the elites seek to use their power to to effectively expropriate from um, from from, from marginalised communities. So actually, minister for the margins is probably a really good way to think of it. You may be the only planning minister on the planet that feels comfortable quoting a Marxist uh, urban thinker like uh, David Harvey, who even I would hesitate <laughs> to mention. But, but I actually, I mean, you know, when you actually look at, you know, what Marx actually wrote um, as opposed to what people have said about him or, or it's gone, I mean, one of the most beautiful statements, I think, of our shared hu human journey is, is his statement, that I think, to paraphrase, it's to, to each according to his need, from each according to his ability. I mean, what, what a beautiful statement of how we can progress in a democratic, democratic society and form a, a just place where... Uh
where there's a role for everybody and there's a future for everybody. So, you know, maybe the execution didn't work out so well, but um, the, the theory... Well, the word execution probably applies quite dramatically. However, look, I think this is very... Look, this is very interesting for people who've never come across you before, and I want to talk about this, right? Is that, and I'm not just saying this, it's important that there are people like you who bring to this uh, a culture and a, a background. And I know that you, you bring a lot of thinking and a lot of culture and a lot of values to this discussion. I want to talk a bit about that now. Let's have a think about that, right? So you've mentioned David Harvey, <laughs> you mentioned uh, Marx. Um, who would you say, I mean, you know, there's, there's probably too many, but people that you like return to and think about and think that's really helped my understanding of, of the role I play. Oh, in terms of um, mentors and thinkers and... Yeah, um, really. I mean, I'm very interested in the background of people. I've been asking people in these podcasts about the, the kind of intellectual and emotional hinterland to some degree. You know, what do you bring to the table? Well, um, I mean, ultimately all these issues um, come back to issues of faith, which is always a very difficult terrain to tread, but I'm happy to, 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 to go there. But um, in, in the first instance... I mean, at a political level, I'm inspired by people like, for example, um, Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, I think he's an incredibly impressive president, you know, forged by adversity, but also had great opportunity and used that opportunity to, to try and make a difference to those around him. Um, and um, he, he, in the end, he, he, he got frustrated with the strictures of traditional party politics and tried to set up his own party that he called the Progressive Party because what he was effectively seeking to do was to 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 um to to he was hopeful about the future um and um to sort of shape what he saw as progress at the early part of the 20th century um and um you know in his homespun american sort of wisdom he he concluded when one of um he wrote something that was basically autobiographical at the end of his life where he said um uh, you know, do what you can with what you've got where you are. And I think that's a, that's a, that's a beautiful summary of, I think, you know, the way I hope to live. Um, if I had to think of any particular urbanist or sociologist or um, who I found provocative and, and, and troubling, actually, almost, um, uh, and this is, um, I've gone Marxist now, I'm going to go anarchist, um, was Jacques Ellul. Um, I felt some of his work um, was profoundly interesting because um, he's a troubling sort of figure because he 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 foresaw he was you know deeply anti technolo technological he saw it as a deeply dehumanising thing but he's always interested because he saw cities as a crucible of people coming together in a shared humanity and he thought increased technology as a as a as a as a um, uh, as a threat to the humanity that um, is celebrated in cities. Um, I find him quite an enigmatic character, but also one who um, is compelling. I'm disquieted by what he reads because I see some truth in it. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I, I confuse people myself a bit. I think you know this. But the, uh, in that some of my own, you know, I, I would think like an Edmund Burke for me would be, you know, I mean, I, I'm actually, it's interesting. I, I was once described myself as a Burkean socialist, you see. And, the, uh, and, all, and nobody understands it at all. You know, these are two very contradictory Things, but they're essentially about, about I think, respecting tradition and what you re, you inherit, learning from the past, and then being sensible about what the new stuff that you wish to absorb, and then doing it in a kind of communitarian kind of way. I think is where I, I get to. I, I'm very, I've always been very interested in who you've 
read and always very interested in who you've read most recently on, on, on the Roosevelt thing. Oh, so you come back, you, 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 you reply. Go on. I actually, interesting, because you picked out conservatism and socialism as, as combatants. I don't see it that way. No, I, I don't, yeah, yeah. I think that's right because I see. I think that's right because I think there's a what you and I. And I don't think we've talked about this, but it's worth sharing. I think that word atomization that you used before that that whole idea of an overemphasis on individualism. I think and and rather than a significant emphasis on what we share and the community and all that kind of stuff. I, I do understand that you come from that kind of ethos, and I think that comes across, Rob. Frankly, in in the work and the way that you what you're trying to do. I think is to try and find a way. Of embodying some of that stuff in, in what you do, which is you know unusual, I think. I, I, I wanted to pursue something. The um, so we're doing this. We're having this conversation at a remarkable time, obviously, and where actually nothing is more important, I think, than the ethos that we bring. You know, it's forced us, I think, to think about fundamental issues and 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 actually really raise difficult questions about community, how we forge community um, in these rather difficult times. Um, Specific things that relate to your own work. I mean, do you think, for example, as people are recognizing more the importance of things like open space at a time of the crisis that we've been through? Do you think people think more about the neighborhood? Um, what do you think about that? Yeah, well, I, I've, I've thought this was coming for a long time. I, I, the short answer is yes. Um, I, I, I've always um, liked to, to challenge orthodoxies, not because they're necessarily wrong just because someone's got to challenge them um, and in urban planning policy one of the big orthodoxies is that um, sprawl is bad density is good um, and I think it's probably right um, but but I think it also needs to be challenged a hundred years ago or more the orthodoxy was precisely the opposite um, and I think often we um, yeah, we oscillate between one extreme and the other, and the truth is always somewhere in the middle. And I think um, we've been seeing the preferences. You, you look at the real estate data and people globally, um, you know, I, I will, in, in, in um, the UK, for an example, I think house prices over the past year have gone up 13.5% or something like that. But in London, they've only gone up 3.7%. Um, similarly, here in Sydney, um, house prices have gone up, I think, about... Uh, about, um, well, I think it's about 15.5%, whereas, but in Byronshire up on the far north coast, they've gone up almost 30%. So it shows that people are fleeing what they see as congestion and fleeing the pandemic, um, and they want space. And um, in a nature of humanity is, is if we're told we can't have something, the forbidden fruit, that's the thing we want. Um, and so when we're told we should isolate and stay at home, the first thing we want to do is go for a walk in the park. Um, politics is the other possible, so I'm keen to use that um, as, as the opportunity to get out there and, and, and celebrate parklands, expand parklands and restore parklands and rehabilitate parklands as much as we can because, you know, this will pass and we'll go back to business as usual. Um, but there's an opportunity to leave a legacy of some, some amazing parklands and also to link them better. Again, I've, I've referred to as well this sort of old modernist approach of you put the parks over there and you, you, you put the kids or the dog or whatever it is in the back of the car and you drive down to the park and you go for a walk and then you drive home again. In one sense, isn't that silly? I mean, wouldn't it be better to just be able to walk wherever it is you, you want to go or ride or, or use the parks in a more lineal sense so that um, uh, rather than, than being the parks over here and the people over here, um, have almost the streets themselves as parklands or extensions of parklands.
I also know that you're a bit of a student of Jane Jacobs, I mean, who, who is the sort of anti-progressivist figure in the, in the American sense, because Robert Moses came out of the Rooseveltian universe yeah. to some degree, not to some degree, but I think Moses has his virtues, which we forget, which is he actually got stuff done. And he was very original in how he funded it. You know, just the fact that he was a bit of an animal in every other respect. But the Jane Jacobs thing is interesting because she always, as you, I know you know this, she was always a bit worried about parks at a big scale because she knew that they were actually under curated and under occupied and quite dangerous. I think what you're nailing in your own ways is say that you can do little things, actually little bits of greenery, not, you know, not just massive parks, but actually like relevant bits of green uh, that people can enjoy and walk to. And I think the, we've, we've discovered, I, I don't know who invented the term, but I love the term of the nearby hood um, which, you know, and I think that 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 slightly more mixed use decentralized economy is coming at us. And, and that's not a bad thing. I think the question mark is what happens to our CBDs, Rob? The um, is a bit of a for me, <laughs> you know, the rebalancing is great one way. And I don't quite know. And I the challenge I put to you, uh, we might as well have this bit of a conversation is, is how do you do a suburb without an herb? You know, uh, so I, I'm still thinking that we need a successful CBD. I, I just see that discussion. Well, um, it's it's a it's a problem, isn't it? I mean, um, you know, and and uh, Ed Glazer was um, I, I was listening to to him recently, and he was saying effectively, you know, our CBDs will recover from a lockdown, they'll recover from a second lockdown, but a third or a fourth lockdown or a continuing rolling set of pandemics will basically discourage investment into these areas and will will undermine. Um, the capital flows that sustain the CBDs. Um, and he, you know, he sort of faithfully su suggests, you know, millions and millions of urban services jobs um, could disappear on the basis of that. Yeah. And it's, it's happened throughout history. I mean, most recently you look at, you know, what happened around, um, you know, the, 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 the US Rust Belt cities. I mean, Detroit yeah. would be an example where Ann Arbor and Dearborn and those areas have grown um, and the centre has died. Interestingly, in, in those cases, you, you had the suburbs became the new herbs and generated their own suburbs. So, yeah. so there's something organic about it. Um, but, you know, um, even, you know, London or Rome, when, you know, at the fall of the Roman Empire, that they didn't, um, they sort of, it, it seems that they, 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 you know, they just didn't disappear overnight or they just sort of gradually people moved away. Um, so, you know, the, the archaeological, I've read a fascinating um, book about um, Roman London, um, recently, and it was effectively that the, the the received wisdom of the archaeology is that it just gradually commerce left the city, and people tended to move outward, um, and the, the city became less and less dense, and uh, because its reason for being um, was gradually eroded. Um, that that's the risk. I don't think that'll happen in Sydney, um, but I think globally, um, in global cities, um, global cities run on. Glo you know, on, on global trade, I mean, ever since Saskia Assassin sort of coined the phrase, they were the islets, if you like, through which the thread of global capital flowed. And the pandemic, I mean, it, it is a direct assault on the three things that sustain globalisation, which is, you know, free movement of, of people, uh, free movement of goods and free movement of ideas. And those three things are the things that are, that are under threat. And, um, and so global cities, you know, is rocking their fabric. So I, I'm going to run a line which is a bit more, which I think you, you might agree with, but let, let me put a proposition to you. The, 
and then I want to talk to you about your own priorities going forward. Okay, so um, so the proposition I put about Australia, but Sydney particularly, is something like this. And I, I was listening to somebody I know you know of, Andres Duaney, who set up the Congress for New Urbanism. He said something interesting about what had happened in the 1918-19 pandemic in the States. What happened in the States was people with choice moved from the kind of the, the uber city, the, the high density city, the city that with the kind of weather that caused respiratory problems, right? They moved uh, from the tenement world to Florida and to Los Angeles. And in fact, interestingly, the built form that comes out of that is the Californian bungalow. Um, and that, which obviously we get in Australia. In fact, famous visitors started coming to Australia in the 1920s, like D.H. Lawrence and people, in order to escape a northern climate in order to come to a southern climate. I put you at an optimistic scenario, which I I'd love people to think about more, which is, I think that given that we've done really spectacularly well, we don't always think that, but around health outcomes uh, in comparison, just to put it in context, Rob, and again, I know you know London, but um, more people have died in the London borough of Hackney than in the whole of Australia, you know, in, in COVID. We just need to, I think there's a, for me, there, there may be a kind of Australian, um, exceptionalism to some degree and i think that the market will see this of people wanting to come to sydney and wanting to and sydney itself is you know a fifth the density of london so you know i think there is a for me once we all get our nerve back and have a look at the world and what's really been happening internationally i think people will begin to see the attractions again of a, of a kind of sydney i think there'll be churn i think there'll be you know rents come down the the, the key to melbourne's success is not just lane rates it's cheaper rents you know, the, it's more diverse. People didn't live in Melbourne in the 1990s. They live there now, as it were. So I, for me, I think there'll be some churn of younger companies and sort of uh, startups and stuff coming in. I think cities will see the need to animate their city centers. You know, there'll be redesign going on. There'll be on the street stuff going on to attract people in. It'll be different. Um, and maybe come back to the Duaney thing. We end up with a kind of... Uh, I always thought it was a bit odd that uh, Australia was a Mediterranean climate, but didn't have a Mediterranean culture in terms of life on the streets. So maybe that's where it goes, you know, and maybe we can balance. And I, I know it's in your head about balancing a more vibrant mixed use suburbs with these walkable precincts, but we still need some economic jet engine, I think, uh, in, in, this, in the CBD. So m priorities, right? You, you're, uh, you've got a, uh, you know, I think anybody listening would, would really think you've got a good handle on all the issues that matter. You've got a bit of an empire that you might be able to deploy things in, right? What are, you, what are your priorities for going on uh, at the moment, Rob? Well, there's, I mean, you know, there's a whole series of priorities and they operate at different scales and spatialities. And so it's difficult to sort of summarise them specifically. But I, I think in, in generalities, um, there's... Um, I'm, I'm really keen to in the in the in the public spaces uh, um, space. I'll start off with that because I think it's inexorably linked to planning and great planning outcomes. Is we've always again you know this sort of modernist approach of separating uses, and we're, because we're locked into land use zoning, it sort of forces us to separate things, which is the the, the, the complete opposite of how people live. But put that to one side for a moment. Um, we tend to think of parklands as um, as we're a city that, in the case of Sydney, for example, but um, uh, and remembering there are many cities and towns across New South Wales, but use Sydney as, a, as our big global city, um, we see ourselves as a city that consists of a whole lot of little bits of parkland, some big, some little, you know, all different. 
but what we don't think is actually turn it the other way around and see, well, um, aren't we a city within a park? Because ultimately we are. I mean, for for, for UK um, listeners, you know, one of the shibboleths of of of, of, um, of national importance to, to Britain is the Greenbelt. Um, we don't have the same thinking, but we instead we have this ring of national parks that's quite unique. I mean, you know, how many global cities can you travel half an hour out of the city centre and find yourself in an environment that hasn't changed in tens of thousands of years? I mean, that's since the last ice age. I mean, that, that's quite unique. And one of the key um, draw cards that I think we have, and we need to protect our environment because it's an economic asset to the, to the growth of the city. But, um, but so the first thing is to reconceptualise the way that we are not a park with a, a city with parks, we're a park in a, we're a, we're a city in a park. Um, and so setting up um, a, a cohesive body um, with its own legislation to, to run the greater city parklands is a real uh, priority of mine at the moment and using the pandemic and the focus on public open spaces. Uh, as the driver for that, and that that's the opportunity to to, to help create a, a legacy for future generations. Um, the other big point, uh, the, the other big area is uh, is this this really difficult problem of um, which is altogether less um, uh, less grand, but in one sense more um, immediate, uh, which is linking infrastructure provision with. Uh, with housing supply and uh, and and jobs growth, um, in in this country we've 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 gotten very good at rezoning land. We haven't got as good at providing the infrastructure to ensure that land that's rezoned is actually able to be developed, and to make sure that the people who benefit um, also contribute toward the costs of unlocking housing supply in those areas. And so, infrastructure contributions reform, um, as mundane as it might appear is perhaps the biggest single thing that I can contribute. Um, and it's probably the hardest thing to do, which is one of the delicious reasons as to why I want to give it a go. Um, and the third area that, um, that, that comes to mind, you know, without having previous forethought about this, is this also really difficult and troubling problem of how do we ensure that everyone has access to a decent place to live. Um, this, this, this old bugbear of housing policy, it, again, and, and Marx wrote extensively about colonial Australia because he saw it as a, um, as a great example of, um, of, of how capitalism works really well in its early stages. In other words, when there's plenty of land, everyone can make money and everyone, everyone does really well and everyone's a capitalist. But of course, um, our traditional response to, um, to housing need is a uh, will the private market that you just go off and, and buy a house and that, that then becomes your castle and your building block of, of of wealth and investment and that all works pretty well when everyone has reasonable access to, to getting in the housing market um, but um, but clearly now uh, that's just not realistic anymore and it's a real trouble particularly for my political party because we've built our whole um, political uh, Resin d'etre on on provide on on this idea of of um, of home ownership, and the great Australian dream. You know, the great American dream is life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. The great Australian dream is owning a house, and by house I mean quite 
specifically a house, a detached house in the suburbs, a bungalow. That's what it's come to mean. Um, and, uh, and, and that's a persistent view. And as much as we encourage people, the diversity of, you know, different rental products or, or, or inner city living or apartment living, there still is this very um, ingrained uh, suburban um, uh, sort of um, ideal in, in, um, in the hearts of many Australians. And um, we're, we're simply, um, with our current tax settings and housing supply issues, not able to deliver that. And I think that's a massive problem for, 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 for government and for community. You are listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, The City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Yeah, I think that's well said, and I think that's rational. Uh, I, I, I think you know I've written a bit about the latter subject, and I can't... I, I'm trying to... <laughs> I think there's a, people are trying to get a... Um, like a, a gallon out of a pint pot, as it were. You know, the, uh, the, the it's. I think we, for reason that you've alluded to, um, around the contradictions in public policy. I think actually at a, between a federal and a, and a state level, to some degree. Then, and I understand all of them, and I, you do as well. They're they're all rational things in themselves, but they could lead to a situation where we might have peaked in terms of the proportion of society that is able to own a home in in, a, in Australia. Um, because every time a first-time buyer tries to go out and buy a home, somebody with two homes who's already borrowed up can, can outbid them. And that combination, for me, this is my view, that combination of the incentive, uh, the incentive uh, incentives for investors and the incentives for first-time homeowners, they clash, it seems to me, uh, quite a lot in Australia. And I, I'm, I don't think mere supply can solve that problem, but that's, that, that's just my take. I think it's a very good ambitious in the proper sense, not over ambitious, but ambitious in the right sense of a minister is trying to change uh, the society that he inherits, you know, I do think that. And Tim, one of the, the, the wonderful paradoxes, I mean, I, you know, these are problems that do your head in, but that's what makes it so interesting. Um, and planning is full of paradoxes. Um, and the, one of the first things that I learned, and I tell my staff is, yes, it's a paradox, <laughs> deal with it, <laughs> you, you yeah. know, there are two things, they're both true and they don't make any sense, so just move on. Um, but, but one of the paradoxes here is with housing policies, actually, um, I mean, obviously, how can you make housing affordable at the same time as ensuring that people don't lose value in their existing house? You can't do both at the same time. In fact, there's a really easy way to make housing more affordable. Just build it really badly, make sure it doesn't have any infrastructure supporting it, um, make sure it segregates people as much as possible, make sure no proximity to local jobs. Um, I, I actually don't think the outcome in that sense should be, as I've just defined it, to make housing more affordable. Um, I, I think it's instead what we need to do is reconceptualise the problem is let's help everyone get access to a house. Yeah, I agree. If there's enough to go around, then, then, then we can help people get access to a second house. But until everyone's got one, let's not incentivise people buying multiple. So I'm going to end with this because I think that uh, that clarity that you've just shown is exemplary, and I think uh, not it's, it's more co uncommon than you would expect, Rob. I think, but that 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 clarity around what is the public policy objective, I think, for me, has been slightly missing from the, the housing debate. So I'm very glad to hear you have such clarity about it. I also think it speaks to something I want to end with. You mentioned some really interesting stuff that I, I know that shows your technical grasp. So, you know, you've, you've mentioned a couple of times, I think, the whole tr challenge around 
zoning where we, uh, you know, as you and I know, the, J the Jane Jacobs universe is actually a more mixed use uh, kind of universe. And we've found a way to planning systems everywhere, which have separated out these things. But when you ask people what they like about place, they like the mix uh, of a place. So, so I know that you're trying to find your way back to that. The, the last thing I want to ask you about, and it, it's, it's, it's a big thing, but it's a good thing. And you started with it and you, it's, it suffuses your conversation, which is the values that you bring to the, to this discussion, because what I think is a really important part of all this, you know, uh, is that um, part of the problem with, to, to, you know, the, I, I, when I first came to Australia, I, I was stunned by how oh, the victory of the economic rationalists everywhere, uh, you know, and, and I understand that it's rational to want to do well for your family. Um, but, but there's a kind of amazing economic uh, emphasis uh, in, in Australia which I think is for me an underpinning of what you can then use to achieve something else as it were. So for me, the conversation is, 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 you know, what are you trying to achieve that's good on the basis of the wealth that we have as it were, because it's a very wealthy society. Now, what informs your views of stuff? You've, you're, you're well read. You've got, I think really interesting philosophical take on what a just society is right so i want to talk about you know not many people you have you talk about a just city and your drive to that so i want to talk about what do you mean by that and where do you think that comes from and then the last thing of all and for me you might be the first thing of all is that i know you come from a christian background and, and so do i and i and i want to talk about how it sort of translates into your into your thinking so the just city and then what does your faith bring to this discussion yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean, and, and there's always a cautious terrain I tread because it, it, people have got very um, polarised views or fixed views um, uh, about issues of faith. And so they're deeply personal, but at the same time, you can't separate them from your outlook because they're what form, you know, the mental models, the heuristics you use to look at the world. Um, and they're also... Um, they're the, you know, often f f everyone's got them. We've got these inarticulate uh, premises that, that guide our decision making. And so I think um, it was John Salisbury who said, you know, who's more contemptible than he who scorns knowledge of himself. So I think actually having a fix of what your faith is and what you put your trust in is actually a, a fundamental question for all of us, because then it helps you. It provides, I suppose, some sort of, um, you know, um, guidepost for, 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 for how you solve problems or look at the world. And I think it's only fair that you you share, particularly if you're a public official, you know, why you think the way you do. And so, yeah, I, I do come from a from a position of Christian faith, um, but but a bit like Jacques Ellul, he, he was a theologian and a, sociolo a sociologist, um, but he, um, he railed against established churches and institutions um, because he saw them as deeply flawed. And in one sense, that's part of my... Um, my, my understanding of the Gospels, for example, that humanity is flawed. We're wonderful, we're creative, we're inventive, we're created in the image of God, but we're deeply flawed. And our best possible work is flawed. <laughs> um, that, that's a really useful public policy yardstick for me to use, knowing that, um, you know, that, that old saying, don't make the perfect the enemy of the good. Uh, just do the good that you can in front of you on, on the basis of the best available information you have. Politics is also the art of the possible. So anyone listening to this could look through, you know, the things I've said and done that, that haven't turned out as well as they could have, or, you know, I might say one thing, but, but then the government I'm part of does another. You can only 
um, do the best thing you can in front of you. And um, the knowledge that I will get it wrong is actually enormously empowering because if I tried to make sure that everything I did was perfect, then I'd do nothing at all. And so my, my Christian worldview recognises that I have a duty to try and love others um, and do the best I can with what I have. But it also offers me the grace that if I get it wrong, um, well, that's okay. I, I'm, I'm forgiven. I'm, I'm flawed and I'm recognised for that flaw. But it also equips me with this absolutely um, uh, unescapable, in the Jonah sense of unescapable, um, mission to, 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 to try and serve others and love others um, as best I can, um, knowing in the full knowledge that I'll be imperfect and I'll get it wrong. Um, and that's why I find cities so interesting because um, they're basically collections of humanity. Um, they're organisms, as Patrick Geddes, you know, have it. And, um, you know, uh, I mentioned Harvey Moloch before, and he talked about, you know, cities as growth machines, as these sort of Cartesian um, machines that we're just, you know, uh, sort of, uh, we're, we're cogs in, in for example. Um, I, I see cities as deeply human, and I find it interesting because you mentioned neoliberalism before, and that would see cities more just as accumulations of capital and, and big mega projects and railways and freeways and all, all these sorts of things. Um, I think that's sort of missing the point. Um, it's about the people and uh, uh, that's what makes them so interesting. That makes them ultimately completely, um, that you'll never get it right. One of the things I say about planning is, there will always be conflict. There will always be a level of chaos and that's okay. That's humanity. Um, the, the idea is to try and shape that conflict or, or that, that uh, they, that, um, in a, you know, democratic planning system, um, to, 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 to give room for that and to recognize you're going to get criticized. And frankly, if you don't get criticized, that's a much bigger problem than, than, than coping with criticism. Um, you know, I think it was Karl Mannheim when he, he talked about the, the, um, the you know, de democratically planned society, he sort of um, said, you know, too much uh, what, uh, top down, you end up with autocracy, too much bottom up, you end up with anarchy. Um, uh, and, and he used Durkheim's term of anome, um, this idea that if you don't have enough top-down direction and enough bottom-up participation, you end up with with a nothingness. Uh, um, and my fear is, in many Western cities, that's what we're ending up with—just a vacation of um, of the public sphere. Which is again why public space is so important to create context for people to come together. Um, uh, echoing Jacques Ellul, he's he, he said, you know, his fear was technology that um, that it would make us um, unemployed. My fear is actually. Not that it makes us unemployed, it makes us unemployable. Um, I even look at my own children and their addiction to devices um, and they're not able to develop the skills of, um, of, of reading and of synthesis and of, uh, of, of the capacity to, to, to engage in reason, debate and argument and work through an idea with a really disciplined focus. Um, so, so that's why the public realm is so important and we should never lose sight of the fact that cities are ultimately collections of human beings and they operate best uh, when everyone um, has opportunity um, and when people run out of hope that's when cities start to collapse and become frightening places and decaying places. There's nothing I can add to that I think that was the, a very articulate summing up of two things that I think are really important right which you show I think one is that 
a politics without a moral sense is is both dangerous and, and empty. It seems to me. So I think that uh, you know we, we I prefer people of faith uh, in these discussions. But I think the second thing is to have a sense of humility, and that you know I, I grew up in a Calvinist background of my fallen status makes us humble. And I think Rob, if I might say so, that coming together of, of ambition and humility is something that you're working through in a really interesting way in New South Wales. Uh, and I'm delighted that you were able to join us for this conversation. Well, thank you very much for having me, Tim. You've been listening to the Grimshaw Podcast, The City Series, with your host, Tim Williams. Join us again for other episodes in this series from your favourite podcast provider.